to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be uh, specifically looking at Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 33 through 39. Uh, should have a Bible uh, in your front in front of you. If you don't have one, we're not trying to be uh, necessarily Bible scholars, uh, but the Bible is uh, God's word that has been revealed to us. So we want to know what it says. So we're going to definitely be in the Bible this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, Mark chapter 15, verse uh, 33, you know, I just want you to kind of think about, you know, what is it that you think about? Uh, does that make sense? Like, what is it that your mind contemplates on? Um, like, like, at the core, like, what occupies your thought life? Like, for my son, I think animals. I mean, he'll come up to me, he'll be so intense, and he'll, he's like, Daddy, I got to tell you something. And I'm thinking he's going to tell me, you know, he did something bad or maybe he did something really amazing. And he'll just say, did you know that, um, you know, a tiger shark, you know, has um, a certain amount of teeth? You know, just, I mean, that's all he does is talk about animals. Uh, you know, I, I, what I think about a lot is, is sports, right? Uh, specifically, Kentucky high school sports. It's really ridiculous how, like, I, I just remember all these useless facts about you know, Kentucky high school football, Kentucky high school baseball, basketball. Um, but, but, but ultimately, even deeper than that, like at the core, um, what is it, you know, that, that you're thinking about when something really good happens, you know, when something really bad happens, uh, when you're trying to make a huge decision, you know, what are you thinking about? Uh, what's, what's occupying your thoughts in your day-to-day -day life? Um, during his 26 year of pastoral ministry, uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, who at the time of his life, he was probably uh, definitely the most popular, well-known pastor in London, uh, but probably in the world. Um, one of the well-known, one of the most well-known preachers in church history, um, he addressed his congregation about their thought life and what occupies, what should occupy their thought life. He said, the doctrine of Christ crucified is always with me. Everything else can wait, but this one truth must be proclaimed with a voice of thunder. He said, others may preach as they will, but as for this pulpit, it shall always resound with the substitution of Christ. He said, our blessed Savior would have us hold his death in great reverence. And then he said this, and, and this really convicted me this week. This is the last sentence. He said, we cannot think about it too often. Because, you know, even like Christians be like, man, you're taking it a little too serious. You know, uh, but, but what, what Spurgeon said was, he said, you can't, think, you can't take it too serious. He said, you can't think about uh, the doctrine of Christ crucified too often. So with that, let's go ahead and read our passage for today. Uh, Mark chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 25, but we're going to specifically look at verses 33 through 39. <clears throat> and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just pray today that you would help us, uh, that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been said that um, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but that they did perfect it. Uh, the cross, uh, it wasn't designed uh, merely to kill, but to extract the maximum amount of physical pain from its victim. It was such an exceedingly torturous way to die that, I don't know, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that the word excruciating, uh, literally what the word excruciating means is out of the cross. That word uh, basically had to be invented or coined in order to describe this barbaric practice. Uh, crucifixion, it was reserved for only the worst criminals. Um, and women were actually exempt uh, from suffering its cruelties. During crucifixions, the victim was first flogged uh, and then laid naked on a crossbar uh, with, with, it, with their arms outstretched. The, the soldier would hammer a six-inch iron spike, uh, nearly the size of a railroad tie, through each of the man's wrists, uh, basically completely crushing the nerves uh, that were located there, and he was nailed into place. The victim's arms were so outstretched that both shoulders would have been dislocated in this process. And after his wrists were secure on the cross, um, he was then lifted up uh, into place. The cross was then lifted up into place. Um, another metal spike. Uh, was driven through both of the man's ankles, also crushing the nerves in the man's feet. Uh, the victim was now crucified. On the cross, um, the, uh, the prisoner would eventually die from um, asphyxiation, uh, which is basically a medical term for suffocation. Uh, every time uh, the, the victim would, would need to excel, he would have to push up on his nail-driven feet. And every time he did, um, he would scrape his bloody back against um, the wood of the cross. To investigate crucifixion uh, without actually killing anybody, uh, these German researchers, they tied um, volunteers by their wrist to a cross 
and then monitored their uh, respiratory and cardiovascular activity. Uh, they said within six minutes, the volunteers had trouble breathing. Uh, their pulse rates doubled. Uh, their blood pressure plummeted uh, almost immediately, and the experiment had to be stopped after about 30 minutes uh, due to the severe pain and the potential danger of killing the volunteers. In verse 25, Mark informs us with just three words that Jesus underwent this process. Um, verse 25 says they crucified him. Jesus, uh, he was not the first to die on a cross, uh, it's been estimated that um, by the first century that Romans had crucified 30,000 men in Palestine alone, just in Palestine. And Jesus, of course, uh, wouldn't be the last individual to be crucified. Death by crucifixion was very, very common in that time. Many men died knowing the, the particular cruelties of crucifixion, of the cross. However... Jesus' death was unique. Jesus' death was unusual. We just read about it. The supernatural events surrounding his death inform us that Jesus' death was unlike anybody else's death in all of human history. And so the question is laid before us this morning. And, you know, we've been studying Mark for over a year now. We've been in Mark for a long time. And this is kind of the climax of Mark, right? Uh, we've kind of arrived uh, and this question is, is laid before us this morning. Why is Jesus' death so unique? Why is Jesus' death so important for us? Why should it be so important for us? Well, you know, we're still here 2,000 years later, still talking about Jesus' death. We're not talking about anybody else's death 2,000 years later, but we're talking about Jesus. This obscure guy, he gets crucified like thousands of other people. And we're still talking about his death. Why? What made Jesus' death so significant? <clears throat> well, the details of this passage uh, that we read today actually help us interpret the importance and the significance of Jesus' death. So we're going to look at four interpretive clues today for correctly understanding the death of Jesus. Four interpretive clues. Uh, we see these clues uh, in this text uh, in, in this scene today, um, and, and we're going to talk about it. The first clue is the darkness, all right? The, the, the darkness uh, that took over the whole land. That, that tells us something. The second clue is Jesus' final words. Uh, Jesus' final words, they clue us in to why uh, Jesus' death is significant. And then third, the torn curtain in the temple. And then fourth, uh, the final clue is the centurion's declaration, which is my favorite clue. Um, <clears throat> but now before we get into it, uh, let me just kind of like pastor us uh, for just a moment here. Uh, and I need it too. Um, I want to remind us of the danger that, that we're about to get ourselves into or, or the danger that we're facing or possibly facing this morning. You know, we think coming into this morning... Um, that the solution to life's greatest problems, that think about your greatest problems right now. It's easy to think that the solution to our greatest problems um, are everywhere except for right here. All right, does that make sense? Um, but, but what I'm here trying to tell you is, is that the solution, the solutions to life's greatest problems, no, no matter what you got going on, 
is actually found right here in this text, right? Correctly understood, Jesus' death solves our greatest needs. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, there's not more to be said about that, uh, but Jesus' death solves our greatest needs, right? If you lack joy this morning, if you lack uh, hope, if you lack purpose, if you lack identity, if you lack a passion for God, if you lack a desire for personal holiness, um, if you lack assurance that God isn't just somehow like, just like real disappointed with you, then you need to be reminded of the significance and the importance of Jesus' death. That's what this text holds in view for us uh, this morning. So let's look at the first clue, the darkness. What's the darkness tell us? It tells us that Jesus endured divine judgment. The darkness tells us that Jesus endured divine judgment. So Mark informs us that Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning, and then at high noon, the whole scene dramatically changed. Uh, think about this. The weather went from, from sunny and blue skies to pitch black, right? So for the next three hours, from noon until 3 in the afternoon, the entire land was in darkness. Uh, some have tried to explain away this supernatural event, saying uh, <clears throat> some say it was a dust storm. Uh, some say it was a solar eclipse. But none of these <clears throat> natural uh, interpretations are, are, are really convincing to me. Uh, so, so keep in mind, this is the Passover uh, when, when Jesus is being crucified, that they're in the midst of the Passover, uh, which means there was a full moon, uh, which means a solar eclipse uh, would have been essentially <clears throat> impossible. Solar eclipses only take place when there is a new moon. And if you recall, uh, the solar eclipse uh, that we experienced a few years ago, if you remember that, uh, it didn't last for three hours, did it? Because uh, I remember I was working at the jail. We had all the inmates out there. We all had glasses on. And uh, we, we was all trying to watch them. Uh, and, they're, and, they're, and, and, and inmates, were, they were joking. They were threatening to take the glasses off so they get blinded, you know, and sue the jail. They were just, we just, cut, they were just cutting up. Um, but, but, but no, I just, it, it just lasts a few minutes. Um, it's, it's, it's also the, the rainy season in Palestine, uh, which means uh, a desert sunstorm <laughs> isn't really a part of the forecast. Right. And, and so the only explanation for the darkness is a supernatural one. And, and you got to remember, man, I mean, if God has created uh, something out of nothing, uh, then he can do anything. Right. So so don't don't get hung up. Don't let people that, that think they're a little too smart uh, for their own good, uh, you know, catch catch you slipping like History Channel, all that. I mean, you got to think about if God can, can create something out of nothing, then he can perform any type uh, of a supernatural event. Right. And so, so the only explanation for the darkness is a supernatural one. It, it reveals that this is no ordinary death, right? Jesus' death, he, he, he's someone, uh, he's unique, and something unique is happening. I, I like what one commentator said. He says, at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. And at the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. This is no ordinary death, and Jesus is no ordinary man. So, so what's the significance of this darkness? This is why it's so helpful that we're familiar with our Bibles. Uh, because in the Old Testament, 
Darkness symbolizes God's judgment. Uh, so during the Exodus, if you remember the ninth plague, uh, this is the second to the last plague uh, before, the, before the plague of the firstborn. Uh, we encounter the plague of what? The, the, the plague of darkness. So, so the plague of darkness, God blotted out uh, the Egyptian son as an act of divine judgment. He was condemning the nation for its wickedness with total darkness. Uh, when the prophets describe the day of the Lord, uh, which is a day of judgment, what do they do? They use similar imagery to describe what we see right here in this scene. <clears throat> for example, uh, Zephaniah uh, chapter 1 says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Uh, or you can consider Isaiah chapter 13. Uh, Isaiah says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger. Um, says, To make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from it. Uh, verse 10, Isaiah 13, right here. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. <clears throat> Additionally, the phrase outer darkness is actually a biblical description for hell. Uh, Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, when talking about the people who will not put their trust in him. Uh, Jesus says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness... In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Jude describes the false teachers who infiltrated the church as, thome, as those for whom darkness has been reserved forever. Uh, John tells us that God is light, right? He says, in him there is no darkness at all, just as a contrast there. So this darkness can only be explained by one thing, and that's divine judgment. Jesus is experiencing the judgment of God and the curse of God right now. This is why Jesus wore a crown of thorns and was nailed to a tree. Both thorns and the cross communicate a divine curse. When humanity rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, what happened? God cursed the human race with death and he cursed the ground with thorns. And so when these crown of thorns are placed on Jesus' brow, it communicated um, that the curse of creation, uh, that the curse of humanity, that both fell upon Jesus. Scripture also teaches us that those who die on a tree are cursed by God. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says, Anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So, so the darkness is a clue revealing that God is punishing the world for its evil and God is judging wicked people for their iniquities. But check this out. He isn't punishing sinners. Who's he punishing? He's punishing his son. Man, God is striking the shepherd. The father is crushing, not you, not me, but he's crushing Jesus. Jesus is enduring divine judgment for you, for me. Second clue, 
Jesus' final words. Jesus' final words tell us that Jesus experienced divine abandonment. Man, words, they are incredibly powerful, aren't they? Uh, incredibly powerful. We know this from our own experience. Uh, something told to us uh, in our childhood uh, can still impact us uh, even as adults, right? Well, whether it's good or whether it's bad, surely you know you have some of those experiences uh, where, where something was said to you, uh, whether it was good or, or whether it was bad. Uh, and you still carry those words with you today. I can just think of a million I could share, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, but, but words are, are powerful, man. Um, and we know this from, from world history. Um, another thing I like to think about a lot is history. And, and it, all, it always has fascinated me that, that Adolf Hitler, uh, you know, he, he wrote his famous autobiography, Mein Kampf. I don't know if you know this or not, but he wrote it in a jail cell. He was locked up in 1924, and he wrote that. And that book went on to really stir up and drum up um, what ended up becoming World War II. And, and, and it just goes to show you, you know, that, that book was so influential uh, that it helped kick off a world war. And that's just an example that words are powerful. Um, for, it said every word written in Mein Kampf, uh, that, that book Hitler wrote, said 120 people died in World War II. For every word, 120 people died. Words are powerful. Uh, but there are no words that are as powerful as Jesus' final words. Uh, verse 34, Mark chapter 15, verse 34, look at it with me. Uh, it says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know uh, that Mark is writing primarily right now to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. Uh, he's probably writing the church in Rome, which is why he feels this need to translate uh, th th this, um, this Aramaic phrase that Jesus has just spoken. If you look at your footnote in your Bible, you will see that this is actually a reference uh, in the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting here uh, a verse <clears throat> from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament. Um, li li living, living life in a, full in, in a fallen world uh, that's full of difficulty, that's full of sorrow, that's full of pain, uh, that's full of death. Uh, we, we live a, a life in that kind of a world, and God knows this, right? God knows this. And, and as much as we would uh, like for him to, God does not exempt his people from the suffering and the sorrow and the pain and the death, uh, which is why we need to be familiar with psalms of lament. Lamenting is actually a biblical category. That's why, you know, you got all these false teachers on TV telling you that Christians should always be happy. They shouldn't experience pain. They just need more faith. They're lying uh, because the Bible gives us this huge category of lament and tells us how to do that. Um, and gives us really good instruction on how to lament. Lamenting is God giving us permission to grieve and showing us how to do it. <clears throat> but Jesus isn't just lamenting right here. He is drawing our attention to this psalm because it's full of predictions, Psalm 22, because Psalm 22 is full of predictions that are actually being fulfilled uh, right here in this scene. 
So, so, so depending on how you count, there are at least five prophecies foreshadowing Jesus' death in Psalm 22. So it describes a man who is being mocked and humiliated by others. Uh, you can turn there, you can look later, uh, which we know this is certainly something that Jesus is experiencing. We know that Psalm 22 tells us that, that, that people are gambling for his clothes, right? Um, his bones are dislocated, which was a common experience for those who were crucified. Um, it says he's so dehydrated that his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. Uh, and, and we know from other passages that, that Jesus is thirsty. Psalm 22 even predicts, um, it even predicts Jesus' crucifixion. And this is before crucifixion was even invented. Uh, verse 16 <clears throat> of Psalm 22 says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And this was said before crucifixion was invented. And, and, and whenever I hear people say that, that the Bible is just a bunch of myths and a bunch of stories, I, I just think, then how do you explain uh, the numerous, the numerous predictions in the Old Testament uh, that are just made with 100% accuracy? Uh, when, when some of the bystanders hear Jesus cry right here, uh, they wrongly think that he's calling out to Elijah to rescue him. Um, you know, LOE can maybe sound like Elijah, you know, if you're outside and, and, and there's a little bit of commotion. Uh, also, many believe that Elijah would come uh, to rescue a righteous man in his time of distress. Uh, but what's really going on here? We know Jesus isn't calling out for Elijah uh, we know that he is referencing Psalm 22, but he is also informing us what he has just endured for the last three hours, right? The, the, the physical pain Jesus endured on the cross was absolutely horrific. Uh, we, we don't want to minimize that. Uh, it's difficult to imagine what Jesus suffered physically, uh, but the flogging and the crucifixion were mere bug bites compared to his mental, emotional, and spiritual agony. Up to this point, Jesus has refrained from speaking. He has endured so much pain physically. Uh, Mark hasn't recorded anything, Jesus has said. You know, they make movies just about the physical aspect of Jesus' death on the cross. But Jesus doesn't even say anything about that. You know, um, pr pretty interesting. And, and now he finally voices a concern way after all the thorns being put on his head, all the flogging, way after all that, he's on the cross. And, and think about this, he doesn't cry out, my hands, my back, my feet, you know, my body hurts, not my, my head hurts. Um, what does he say? He says, my God, you know, why have you forsaken me? You know, not trying to make light of a serious situation. I'll walk through, step on a toy. I'm cooked, you know, I'm cooked. But, but Jesus, he's calling out to God right here um, to, to, to be alone. Think about being alone. To be alone, whether real or imagined, uh, is arguably uh, the most painful of all human uh, experiences. Uh, to, to be abandoned, to be forsaken, to be overlooked, it's agonizing. It's agonizing. And in this moment, Jesus was alone in a way that no human has ever experienced. The religious leaders who were supposed to be searching the scriptures for Jesus, they've rejected him. 
Think about Judas, one of his closest friends, uh, one of the 12, um, betrayed him, sold him out for three months' worth of wages. All of his followers fell asleep on him, left him in the hour of his greatest need. Uh, think about Peter. Peter. Peter was ready to throw down with Jesus. I mean, that, that's really dirty. Like, like Peter, he cut, he cut the guard's ear off. Like, I'm ready to throw down. And, and so surely Jesus thinking, he's going to be with me. And then he looks up, Peter's gone. Man, the crowd who once applauded Jesus, they have rejected him. Not only they've rejected him, they've rejected him for a convicted criminal. They picked a, a convicted criminal over Jesus. Jesus has no allies. Mark tells us in verse 40, look at that next week, uh, that even, even the women were watching from a distance. Right? They were even kind of up in the air. Jesus is alone. But at least he has God. Except that he doesn't. Right? Up to this point, Jesus can say what he said in John chapter 8. Uh, the Father has not left me alone because I do everything uh, that the Father asks of me. Right? I please the Father. He's with me. But now the Father has left him. And I'm not going to get into big uh, theological discourse about this because we know in a sense Jesus is both man and both God. Right? His divinity was never separated from the Godhead. Right? We're, we're, we're talking about Jesus as a man here. But the Father has never left him. Um, but, not, but not because Jesus has done anything displeasing. Right? Uh, the, the Father has not left Jesus in his humanity because Jesus has done something displeasing, but because Jesus have, has become our sin offering. Right? Sinners are cut off from God. Jesus was sinless. But Jesus was, and this is something you need to think about, Jesus was identifying himself with sinners like us so much that God is going to treat him like a sinner. Right? God the Father must look away. God must turn his back. This cry that, that, that Jesus cries out, uh, it reveals that the sinless one has become the sin bearer for sinners like us. The, the, the son is being abandoned by the Father so that we never will. That's good news. Jesus is consuming the cup of God's wrath for us. And in doing so, he will suffer more than any sinner could ever suffer in hell. And he's doing that for us. I like what one guy said. He said, his scream was the scream of the damned for us. No, no analogy or illustration really does it any justice, in my opinion. But I was just trying to think of some sins uh, that Jesus, that when, when Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was thinking about some sins that, that he would have been punished for in our place in that moment. So think about this. Bitterness, blasphemy, boasting, murder, abortion, complaining, Greed, gluttony, coarse joking, despising the poor, dishonoring the government, disrespect, harsh words, adultery, losing your temper, malice, prayerlessness, racism, rape, 
selfish ambition, laziness, unlawful divorce, drunkenness, fornication, fraud. I'm in there a bunch. And, and that's, that, that's what Jesus took on for us, okay? So all of us can identify with this. So when Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, you know, just imagine the weight of the sins of the world. Just imagine what the weight of the, the, the weight of the sins of the world, what that felt like. All these sins, and I didn't even name but 20, right? A lot more. All right, third clue, the torn curtain. The torn, and we're wrapping up here. The torn curtain tells us that Jesus secured access to God. Uh, we see that the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to bottom. Uh, this is both an act of judgment uh, for the amount of corruption taking place in the temple, but it's also an act of mercy. Uh, because now temple sacrifices are no longer needed in order to approach God. You no longer need to be a Jew uh, to live. Um, you, you, know, you, know, you no longer need to be a Jew or live close to Jerusalem uh, to draw near to God, right? Hey, what, what all do you need? All you need is Christ, right? It's all you need. And the direction of the ripping of the curtain, I think, is significant. That the curtain was torn from the top to bottom demonstrates that this was an act from God, not like some little joker ran in there. Did it real quick, you know, from the bottom up, right? I mean, this is an act of judgment, right? Um, not the result of human effort. Uh, we have divine access to God through Jesus now, not a Jerusalem temple. Uh, so Jesus secured that for us. Uh, what we could never, what we could never secure on our own, Jesus secured for us. We could never achieve it in a million lifetimes. Um, we could never achieve access to God in a million lifetimes, but Jesus did it, right? Think about the Old Testament. People were scared to approach God, right? Uh, but Jesus, he removes our sinfulness so we can safely approach God. We can boldly approach God now, right? We go right to him because of what Jesus has done. And here's the application um, here's, what, here's the application. God does not merely tolerate you. Right? The cross proves that. The cross proves that God not only tolerates you, but that God delights in you. Right? He treasures you. Right? The, uh, Paul says that we are our, we are, are, I'm going crazy here. God says that we are his inheritance. The cross shows us that God delights in us because he slaughtered his only son for us. He sent his son through hell so that we could be with him forever. All right, fourth clue, the centurion's declaration. Last clue, a centurion was a Roman officer in charge of about uh, 100 officers, hence centurion, century. Uh, he was likely the only one tasked to oversee Jesus' crucifixion. Um, he, he, he was likely in charge for assuring that Jesus uh, had died. 
He would not have been a stranger to death. He would not have been a stranger to crucifixion. But Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' death, they stood out to him significantly. He saw this a lot. He saw it a lot. And, and it stood out to him significantly. Let's read verse 39 real quick. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, this is what the centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is kind of the climax of Mark's gospel right here. We've been in Mark for a long time. And, and this is really it. Everything has kind of led up to this point. Mark opens up this, his, his entire gospel of Mark. Remember, he opens it up with telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, he tells us that, that this is the account of Jesus, the Son of God. And then, just a few short verses later, uh, Jesus is in the Jordan River being baptized and three supernatural events occur. If you remember, one, this is at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the heavens are torn open. <coughs> two, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And three, what happens? The Father declares... For all to hear that what? That Jesus is the divine Son of God. And then you fast forward three years later, and what happens? The land is swallowed up in darkness. The curtain is torn in two. And the centurion declares that Jesus is the Son of God. So the Gospel of Mark starts out with the heavens being torn open, right? the heavens being torn open, and the Father declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. And the Gospel of Mark ends with the curtain being torn in two and a mere man, the centurion, declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. See, God already always knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Now man knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Y'all see that connection? The, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible is amazing. Right? So, so, so what Mark is doing right here is placing bookends at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, telling us the fact, and this is the fact we said that we wanted to grasp and get a hold of at the beginning of our study, that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? So, so, so let us know that. Uh, as we contemplate things this week, as we think about things this week, think about animals, man. I want Josiah to think about animals. And I, I, we got a game this afternoon. I'm going to think about sports all week. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, but, but what's at our core is that Jesus is the divine Son of God and that he died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And now we can have access to God. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for sending uh, Jesus to live a life that we could never live, to, to die a death that we deserve, and, and to do what only you can do, um, and that is get up out of that grave so that we could be raised to new life with you. And now we know that we don't, you know, you just don't merely tolerate us, but you see us as you see Jesus. Because Jesus was our substitute on the cross, we now get Jesus' resume of holiness and righteousness and obedience. And when you see us, you see Jesus. And I pray, God, that transforms us uh, in how we live our lives uh, as individual Christians and as uh, corporately as the church. Uh, so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.